Take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to the Gospel of Luke. Gospel of Luke in the New Testament, third book. We began our, our series last week here on Luke, and we'll continue um, in verses 5 through 25 of, of chapter 1. Uh, it works out well that we are somewhat in the, the midst of the Christmas story here at the beginning of Luke. My design was to be in chapter 2 by the time Christmas comes around, which won't happen, but that's okay. Um, so we're here in chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. Um, as you think about Christmas, I don't know, there's certain words that just are kind of Christmas words. Would you agree? Um, the one around our house is Noel. Um, like Noel, obviously having a daughter named Noel, she seems to think that in some ways Christmas is all about her. Um, so we have to keep reminding her that it's not just her name, it actually you know it means Christmas. So Noel is one of those words. Joy is another word you see um, emblazoned across things that kind of reminds us of, of Christmas. Another one of my favorite uh, Christmas words is eggnog. Um, I don't know, maybe not everyone else loves that one, but I, I like that word. Um, another one that I would like to add to the mix that maybe isn't you don't think of um, when you think about Christmas is um, anticipation. Um, Advent is, is a time of thinking about Christ's coming and the anticipation of that, and also the anticipation of his, of his second coming. But as we think about anticipation, that's so much of what the Christmas season is, isn't it? Uh, we have an Advent calendar at our, at our house that's counting down the days, and we get to open up a little door. We went with the one without chocolate this year um, so that there wouldn't be any fighting over that, and, and because Pastor Henry provides my kids with chocolate every Sunday, so uh, there's no need uh, for it. Um, but we have this calendar, and the, and the girls look forward to it every day, and so we're, we're on day nine now, and the anticipation is, is building. And I think that was a part of Christmas even before it existed. That here in the book of Luke, as we look at all these events unfolding, there's anticipation something is coming. And even before this, um, last year, I remember we talked a lot about this 400 years of silence that led up to this inbreaking of what we would call the Messianic Age, the time when the Messiah had come, when Jesus shows up on the scene. And so for 400 years after Malachi wrote the last word of his prophecy, there's silence, there's no prophets speaking and then all of a sudden in the new testament there's angels that are showing up there's there's all these miraculous things happening and, and people begin to see something is something is happening something amazing is going to come and there's this this building um anticipation so i love that part about christmas even as we wait for the the day that's coming we think about the anticipation that was felt um then but i think that with all anticipation sometimes when the event finally arrives we're kind of like is it has it really come? Is this is this real? Is it you know we'll wake up on Christmas and we'll say I can't believe that it's actually Christmas Day. It's December twenty fifth. This is amazing. And I think what's interesting here in the book of Luke is that when when this event finally comes to the people of Israel, they, it's it's as if they don't believe it. It's as if they've been praying for this for years that God would show up and and they've been anticipating. It. And then when it finally happens. They say, no, this isn't real. Is it really happening? Is this really the, the inbreaking of the Messianic age? Is the Messiah really going to come? And so there's this, this tendency to not believe. And I think that's the call for us this morning in this passage that we're going to find, is that when God, when God speaks, we should respond with belief. When God speaks, we respond with belief. We've seen this uh, a lot through Abraham, and I think we're going to see it here, but maybe in some unique ways. When God says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. When he speaks, we respond with belief. 
And so here in Luke chapter 1, we're going to read verses 5 through 25, a wonderful story, um, some exciting points, some points where there's fear, and then there's, in my eyes, some comedic points as well. So let's read this, uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before, the, before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them, and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. I'd like to pray just one more time. Lord God, thank you for your word. As we look at it now, please open our minds, open our hearts, be with my mouth. Teach us what you would have us to learn. In Jesus' name, amen. So Luke tells us at the end of verse 4 that he wants to give an orderly account. He wants to tell us about the events of Jesus. And so he decides that this is where he's going to begin. If you open the book of Mark, Mark begins at the baptism of Jesus, the beginning of of Jesus' ministry. But but Luke, this, this historian, decides he wants to go back a little bit further. He goes all the way back, not not just to the birth of Jesus, not even to the the annunciation made to Mary, but he goes all the way back to this announcement to Zechariah, because John the Baptist is so important to the coming of Jesus. And so he goes all the way back to this event. Luke sets the historical context for us. He says that these things happened in the days of Herod. 
he's, he's communicating that this is something that is certain. This is not a tall tale. This isn't some story that we've made up. This is a true story that happened in real time. It fits a historical context. He says that these things happened in the days of Herod, Herod the king of Judea. Now, who is this guy, Herod? The text calls him a king, which he probably wasn't technically a, a real king necessarily. Rather, he had been he had been placed um, as a ruler over the regions in that area of the Jewish people, been placed there by the government in Rome. And so he was there kind of controlling this area. One thing that we know about Herod is that he liked to build things. He was a builder. He, was a, uh, he built great buildings, and he was largely responsible for the rebuilding of the temple there in Jerusalem. But most of all, what we know about Herod is that he was a ruthless man who had no mercy on anyone. Uh, he would sacrifice friend, foe, family member, wife, children, if it was for his political advantage. This is the Herod you can remember. If you look back in, in Matthew chapter 2, this is Herod, Herod the Great, Herod the First. He's called by different names. This is the one who the wise men came to, and they said, We saw the star of this king. Tell us where he is. And Herod says, Well, he's not here. And they discern, well, He must be in Bethlehem. And as the wise men leave, Herod calls out and says, Hey, when you find him, come back and, and tell me, because I would like to come and worship him as well. By worship, he means I would like to kill him. Uh, because I don't want anyone threatening my throne. Uh, the wise men, it's revealed to them that this was Herod's plan. And when he, when Herod realized that he's been duped by these wise men, what does he do? He orders the death of all male children two years and younger to wipe out this king, hopefully. So Herod is not the nicest character. Uh, and, and, and by saying this happens in the days of Herod, this is marking a, a time of oppression for the Jewish people. But we might say it's similar to the period of the Exodus when they were in slavery. You can think about them in that time period where they were under a foreign ruler. They were not in charge of themselves. And just as Moses was sent to proclaim deliverance from God, so too Jesus is going to be sent into this place to proclaim forgiveness, to proclaim freedom, to proclaim salvation. So by saying in the days of Herod, Luke is kind of pointing out there's, there's a darkness here. Uh, but in the darkness of these times, there's this wonderful couple that shows up that, that Luke introduces us to. He introduces us to Zechariah and Elizabeth, and we will all be better for having met Zechariah and Elizabeth. It tells us here that Zechariah was a priest. Um, it says he was a priest of the division of Abijah. What that means is that the priesthood was divided into uh, 24 priestly divisions, and and Zechariah was found in the eighth of those divisions, the, the division of Abijah. This was um, to, to divvy up the duties um, after the exile, actually, of the 24 um, sections, only four leaders came back. And when those four leaders came back, they divided those four into the 24 so that they could continue these, these priestly duties. So Zechariah is a priest of the division of Abijah. Not only is he a priest, but he has married Elizabeth. Elizabeth is the daughter of a priest. Now, this is this he marries well. This would be seen as a unique blessing upon uh, this marriage. So they have this high position in Jewish society. Of course, those who hold high positions may sometimes be low in character, but not so with Zechariah and Elizabeth. Look what the text says about them. It says um, that they were both, verse six, righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So these are. This is a couple who's righteous. They're blameless. 
That doesn't mean that they were perfect, but rather that their lives were marked by faithfulness to the law. So this is a couple um, who is pure in life. Not only do they have um, a, a high position inside society, but they have a, a purity of life. So uh, Luke is, is talking about um, who these, who, who Zechariah and Elizabeth are, and that they, they hold these this high position, that they're, they're pure. But then he points out this in verse 7, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. So despite the beauty of their service to God, their holiness of life, Elizabeth is barren. She had been barren all her life, and now she and Zechariah are old, and there's no hope of them having children. Luke gives the details about them in the order that he does to say, Zechariah and and Elizabeth were, were revered in society, and they were pure in life, but they were also barren. They did not have a child. The point is to say that their barrenness was not a result of sin, but rather it was God's sovereign choice that they would not have a child at this moment in their lives. He's not very often in that society, uh, barrenness or a lack of, of children would be seen as, as judgment. You see later on, uh, remember what Elizabeth says. She says, God has removed my reproach, the reproach of other people, people who would have looked down on her because she did not have a child. And so there's this thought that because this is like Job's friend. You remember that? They assumed that all these bad things happened to Job. Why? Because he was bad. Bad things happened to bad people. And so Luke points this out, that these were good people. They were following God, but they just simply had no child. I think that's something we need to remember, that if we look at people and we see them and we say, well, it doesn't seem like they're blessed in this particular way, or it seems like they have failed in this certain area of their lives, that they have not received this blessing, that that's not a reason to look at them and say that that's the judgment of God on their lives. We should never judge people in that way. And in the same way as we look at our own lives and we say, why am I not receiving this blessing from the Lord? That we, it may be because of sin, but very times, very often, it's simply God's sovereign choice that that's how um, He has chosen to glorify Himself. So now we have these facts about Zechariah and Elizabeth, and I think you know we've got we've got kind of a unique perspective, don't we? Because we're coming off of this story of Abraham and Sarah and the miraculous birth of Isaac. So when we jump into verse eight, we're we're kind of expecting something, you know. Zechariah and Elizabeth weren't expecting a thing, but when we jump into verse eight, we're saying, you know, they were old. But that doesn't mean anything. They certainly could have a child. And so we come into verse 8 here, and we see that, that Zechariah was serving um, in Jerusalem. So of these 24 divisions of priests, they would each take turns, and two weeks out of the year they would go to Jerusalem, and they would, um, they would serve there in Jerusalem in the temple. And so it tells us here that this is Zechariah's turn. Uh, his the his division. So here he is on division. Not only that, but as they're preparing uh, to offer incense, the offering of incense would have happened twice a day. It would have happened in the morning and in the evening. And someone is chosen to do this each time. As they're preparing for this offering of incense, they they cast lots as to who is going to have this privilege. And when they cast the lots, the lot falls to Zechariah. Now, casting of lots, it's it's kind of like drawing straws or, or flipping a coin. Maybe one of the priests said, you know, everyone pick a number between 1 and 100. And, you know, probably not like that. But they, they cast lots. This was a, a divinely ordained means for them to determine who was going to go in and offer the incense. And the lot falls on, on Zechariah. Now, that may seem insignificant. So I think first we should recognize the privilege that Zechariah has here. 
he's not the high priest, and so he would never be able to go into the Holy of Holies. But offering incense would place Zechariah as close to the presence of God as he would ever be in his life. It was a daunting uh, privilege. It was one of those tasks that he probably longed for all his life, waited for the opportunity that he would be the one chosen to go to offer incense. But it's also one of those tasks that when it finally fell to him, I'm sure he was scared to death and said, do I really want to do this? So it's a privilege. But we should also think about God's providence in this, in choosing Zechariah. There were thousands of priests. Uh, one, one count, I think, said 18,000 priests serving at this time. And so a priest got one opportunity to do this, to offer incense. And some priests died never having the opportunity to, to fulfill this, this privilege. And so here's elderly Zechariah, who's been serving as a priest all his life, and now he finally gets his chance. This is his opportunity to go and to be the one who offers incense. I'm sure he was excited, but we look at him and we say, you have no idea what you're, what you're going to see in there, Zechariah. You should be even more excited than you are. So this is a privilege, but also God's providence. And I, I think that's a, a comfort, isn't it, to think about God's providence in this? That, that God is in the details. Uh, that God knew from eternity past uh, that, that Zechariah was going to be born as a priest. Not only was he going to be born as a priest, but he was going to marry Elizabeth, the daughter of a priest. Not only that, but he was going to be of the division of Abijah that was going to land in Jerusalem at this specific moment. And God ordained at that moment that this is when the lot falls to Zechariah in his old age so that he will go in and see what he's about to see. God is in the details. God knows what's going on. He's working all things for his glory, not just for Zechariah, but also for us, that he knows us. He knows where and when we were born, to whom we were born. He knows the person that we have or will marry. He has ordained these things. Uh, he knows the areas in which we are served, and we know that all these things are unfolding for our good and for his glory. He's working things out in his divine plan. So the lot falls, and 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 it falls on Zechariah, and then the day comes. So it's, it's verse 10 here. It says, The whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So you kind of get the picture here. Everyone, the priests arrive, and there's this whole multitude of people that are outside the temple area, and they are praying. I just want to pause here for a minute, because this is so intriguing to me, you check this out and tell me if you if you think maybe I, I don't think I'm stretching this, but w what I see in this passage is is it's it's saturated with prayer. You see that this is this is the offering of incense. It's an offering to the Lord. But and when we look in Revelation, what is what is incense always associated with? It's always associated with the prayers of the people. It's this picture of the incense being burned and the prayers of the people going up before the Lord. Not only that, but we have this this image of this great multitude that's gathered outside the temple, and what are they doing? They're praying. And as Zechariah goes in and he's going to light the incense, what is he going to do? He's going to pray. So there's this, this, this what's going on here? There's, there's all of this prayer, the incense, the multitude of people, Zechariah, and they're all, they're all praying before God. And I think as you look at this, in the midst of all of this praying, something amazing happens. I think that's a lesson for us, that brothers and sisters, when we pray together, God does amazing things. That when we seek him, when we seek him, yes, as individuals, but I think even more so when we seek him as the body of Christ, uh, corporately, that he responds 
in breathtaking ways. We should always begin everything that we do with prayer, with, with this admittance of our inability, an acknowledgement of God's great ability, with an understanding that, that we are the vine and that God is the branches and that apart from him, we can do nothing. When we pray, God does amazing things. But I think I also love the fact that, that the people are there praying. They are, they are actively involved in what is going on here. They're not in their homes, right? They're not back in their homes saying, oh, I think it's the time that the incense is being offered. I'm glad the priests are there to pray for us. No, they're there. They are a part of what's going on. They don't get to go in. They'll never get to go in. The priests hardly ever got to go into this place. But they are there and they they are praying. They are involved in what's going on. And I would say that as, as one of your elders, as uh, one of the leaders in this church, that that we as elders are supposed to be devoted to, to prayer and to the study of God's word. But that doesn't mean that you can't be. Just because the priests were set apart to intercede for the people didn't mean that the people weren't supposed to intercede for themselves or for the, the nation of Israel as well. And they, they were involved. So even even as we, we do these these public prayers where we stand and offer a prayer of praise, where, where Henry comes up and offers the prayer of confession and thanksgiving, where I stand and do the pastoral prayer, the thought isn't, oh, I'm leading, that Andy's leading in prayer, therefore he's the only one that should be praying. A, a led prayer is to gather us all up to pray together, that, that our hearts would be knit together. Even though one person is the only one that is speaking, we are all praying together. That's why prayer is such a big part of our Sunday evening gatherings, that we would be gathered together, that we would be a people of prayer. A led prayer is not meant to silence you. A led prayer is meant to awaken your heart so that you would say, yes, God, do what this person is saying and do it even more. When we seek the Lord together in prayer, when our hearts are inclined towards his throne, then then amazing things happen. I think we should always begin with prayer. I read this quote from John Bunyan this week. He says, you can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. I'll read it again. Maybe it's a little confusing. You can do... You can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. You should always begin with prayer to recognize our need, and I pray that God would awaken us to our dependence on him in all things. We would desire to be people of prayer. I've been convicted of that so much recently. If God's going to do anything in me, if God's going to do anything in our church, we have to be people of prayer. Apart from him, we can do nothing. And so we see the people out praying. And then the scene shifts in verse 11 into the holy place. Uh, it switches from the, the multitude outside to this man in the midst of the holy place. Of course, he's not in the holy of holies. He's outside of that. He's in this place where the the uh, the bread of the presence would have been, the, the golden lamp stand, the altar of incense is in this place. Zechariah would have entered probably with one or two other priests who would have assisted him, after which they would have left and he would have been by himself to um, finish the duties in there. And in the midst of this, an angel appears. It just kind of says it in the text, doesn't it? Verse 11, and there appeared to him an angel standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Can you imagine what that would be like? I get scared sometimes when my wife enters the room and I don't know it. That's nothing against my wife. It's just maybe I'm easily startled. I can't imagine being in there. And suddenly this angel appears. I mean, add to that the fact that he's there as close to the presence of God as he'll ever be. And an angel shows up. The first thing I'm thinking is, 
I'm dead meat. This is over. I don't know what I did wrong, but it's all done. And so the text says that he was troubled. He was greatly troubled, and fear uh, fell upon him. I guess so. We can't blame him. And if you think that you would stand there and not be scared, then I guess you don't understand what's what's going on here. And so he's fearful, and the angel sees the look on Zechariah's face. <laughs> and so he says what angels always say when they appear. Don't be afraid. <laughs> when they have a good message, they need to make that clear right off the bat. Listen, I'm here not to judge you, not to strike you down. Don't be afraid. He says, don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your prayer has been heard. Now, what is this prayer? What prayer was it? I, there's two options, I would say. One is the prayer for a son. Now, I don't think that that's the prayer that he was praying in this moment, that he was praying for a son as he's there before God's presence. But that would be a prayer from long past, you know, from, from days past before they realized, hey, this is not going to happen. And it could be that the angel is coming and say, your prayer, that one, you remember you prayed it a long time ago. Your prayer has been heard, and now it will be answered. I think that could be the case. And if so, what a great principle, that prayers that we have prayed in the past, even if we don't see their fulfillment now, there may be a day when God answers that prayer. I like that one. I think it preaches really well. But I'm not sure that that's, <laughs> that that's exactly what's going on here. I, I think rather it would be better probably to say that it's, it's the prayer that he was offering in that moment. Probably the prayer that God would send the Messiah. The prayer that God would come and deliver his people. It makes sense to me because not only would Zechariah be praying that prayer, but all this multitude that's behind him, that's waiting for him to come out, is praying the same thing. God, send the Messiah. Deliver us. Come and, and, and deliver us from the hand of Herod, from this wickedness. Show us that you are going to fulfill this promise. I, I don't know if that's, it, it's hard to tell, but I think that that's probably what, what it is, this prayer for the deliverance of Israel. But what's interesting is, in answering that prayer, he's also answering Zechariah's old prayer, isn't he? Because the means by which he's going to answer this prayer is to send John, to give Zechariah and Elizabeth a son. They're going to have a baby, it says. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear a son. And you shall call his name John. What a great story. He's going to come, and the, the text tells us more about this son. It's going to be, he, it says that you will have joy and gladness. So you're going to be happy. Uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah, you guys are going to rejoice at this. Of course they would. It reminds me of Abraham and Sarah when they laughed at the birth of Isaac. Here's another elderly couple given a son in their old age. Of course they're going to be filled with joy. But what's unique is not only will they be filled with joy, but verse 14 says, many will rejoice at his birth. Not only are you going to be happy, but everyone's going to be happy at his birth. Why? Because he's going to be great before the Lord. He's going to be a unique servant of the Lord. That's specified there. It says he should not drink strong wine or, or strong drink. That is probably not a full Nazarite vow where he would not be cutting his hair, even though we know that, that John had a big beard and he was long, you know, we, with the vision that we have of him maybe of that realm. But it's probably just that, that he would be, he, he would not have the, 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 would not partake in wine or strong drink. We even get allusions to Ephesians because the next one here is he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will not be influenced by wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Spirit. 
not just filled with the Spirit, but filled with the Spirit even from his mother's womb. We'll get to see that next week, uh, maybe two weeks, uh, it, it, when he's, he's filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. It says that he is going to turn many of the children of Israel toward their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So John is given this unique role as a prophet. And as the angel's talking, he quotes from Malachi chapter 4. Malachi 4, 5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with with the decree of utter destruction. John comes as this man who is going to proclaim this message of repentance and people turn. Fathers will be turned to their children. The disobedient will be turned to the wise. It's going to change everything. He's going to prepare the people. It's his message is, is a, one of preparation to prepare the people for the coming of the Messiah. Now, we'll look more at that as we, as we consider John further, but I, let's just go back to where Zechariah stopped listening. Um, I think he heard these words. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. I think that's the last thing that Zechariah may have heard. My wife, Elizabeth, is going to have a son? Uh, He he may have been like Sarah, you remember, uh, when the Lord came and said Sarah is going to have a child, and she stifled her laughter. I wonder if Zechariah at first um, felt that way. But his words in verse 18 reveal that he didn't believe, that his response was one of unbelief. He says, how will I know this? What he's asking for there is a sign. He says, give me something to prove that this is real, that this is actually going to happen. I'm not going to take you at your word. Show me a sign that this is actually going to happen. What's the root of his disbelief? He tells us very plainly, for I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. He says, I want a sign. I don't believe it. Let me tell you why I don't believe it. I'm old. (laughs) That's what he tells the angel. He says, this can't happen. I'm old. And so is Elizabeth. We're old. We don't have children. That's, That's long past. So often I think we fall into unbelief. God tells us he's going to do something because of some limitation in us. What's our excuse? We say, I'm old. I'm young. I'm I'm not smart enough. I'm too weak. Whatever your excuse might be. But weakness in us is not weakness in God, is it? Our weakness is not transferred to God. So Zechariah says, I'm old. And the angel says, nice to meet you, old. I'm Gabriel. (laughs) They're both the same structure. It's just emphatic, I am. Zechariah says, I am old. And the angel says, I am Gabriel. And he he says, uh, he, he goes on further, he says, uh, not only am I, I, am I Gabriel, I'm this angel from the book of Daniel that you may have read, but I stand in the presence of the living God. And I stand there in the presence of this God who dwells in unapproachable light. And he sent me here. He sent me specifically to you, Zechariah, to tell you this message of Good news. I've been sent from the throne room, of God, throne room of God with a special delivery, a special message of good news to tell you. So that's who I am, Zechariah. I know that you're old, but I am Gabriel. 
I have this vision in my mind of of Gabriel. Um, if you've if you've watched the Lord of the Rings movies in the first one, where where Gandalf at that one part when they're in the in the um, uh, what's his name Bil- in Bilbo's house, and he just kind of begins to to almost inflate and tower over him and and tell him this is who I am. Um, and I have that picture of Gabriel almost, where he just kind of towers over Zechariah and says, "Listen, this is who I am. Doesn't matter who you are." Zechariah's excuses suddenly look very weak and insignificant when he realizes who is speaking to him. I think the same is true for us when we realize that who God is, the limitations that we set on Him, they just all fade away. If He's God, then He can do whatever He wants. But the angel is kind. Zechariah asks for a sign, so he gets one. (laughs) And the sign is, you won't be able to speak. (laughs) So the sign is a gracious act of God, but it's also a rebuke on Zechariah's lack of faith. He's made silent, and he will remain silent until the birth of John, at which the first words out of his mouth are going to be praise to God. So that ends, um, the the words of the angel end in verse 20, we've been kind of in, inside the throne room, and then all of a sudden, the scene shifts, sort of this meanwhile back at the ranch sort of thing, you know, verse 21, and the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering out at his delay, so we return to this multitude of people who are out there praying, they're, they're waiting for Zechariah, they're still probably trying to pray, but they're probably getting a little distracted, kind of, hey, where is Zechariah, he's supposed to be out here by now, um, they may be asking, where is he? And suddenly when they think that they're starting to get really worried, they all breathe a sigh of relief because Zechariah comes out the doors. Now customarily, Zechariah would have joined up with the other priests and they would have pronounced a blessing on the people. From Numbers, probably, the Lord bless you and keep you, and so on. But they suddenly realize Zechariah is not going to be pronouncing any blessing because he can't talk. He can't speak. You can almost imagine him coming out and, and they're all waiting for him to say something and he's just kind of, so he starts making all these signs so that they can that they can hear and understand what's going on. They realize something happened in there. He must have seen a vision. We see later on that not only could he not speak, but he probably couldn't hear. Uh, in, in the end of chapter 1, everyone's making signs to him because you would think if, they, if he could hear um, that they would be speaking to him, but instead they're making signs to him as well. So he is mute and he is deaf as well. He comes out... Um, and it says that uh, obviously things got taken care of. They kept making signs to him. He remained mute. And when his time of service ended, he went back to his home. Imagine him going back to his home, unable to speak, unable to hear, trying to communicate to Elizabeth what he saw in the temple to tell her what's about to happen. I'm sure he could have written something down, which would have made it easier, of course. But it says in verse 24, after these days, the words of the angel came true. Elizabeth conceives and for five months, it says, she kept herself hidden. I don't know why that is. I'm not sure. Maybe just to make sure it was real before she went out. And then it says, she she praises the Lord. Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. What a beautiful story that God shows kindness to, to Zechariah and to Elizabeth. But I can't help but look back at this scene where Zechariah emerges from the temple and said, what a, what a missed opportunity. If he would have believed 
And he, he exits, and then he finishes his priestly duties. They pronounce the blessing, and then Zechariah could say to this multitude, hold on, everyone, let me tell you what just happened. It's, it's time. I, this angel appeared to me and told me that I'm going to have a son, and that this son is coming in the spirit of Elijah, and he's marking the coming of the Messiah. The, the Messiah is, is coming. Zechariah would have had this amazing privilege to give praise to God in this moment, but because of his disbelief. He missed the opportunity. It's often true with us, I think. Because of our disbelief, we miss opportunities to give praise to God. But there's things that are kind of made up for in his son. His son was certainly not silent. His son was called the voice of one crying, the voice of one shouting in the wilderness. So as much as Zechariah couldn't speak, his son was going to scream it. In the midst of the desert, he was going to say, prepare the way of the Lord. There would be no shame in his words. He would come in the spirit of Elijah. He would come filled with the spirit just as the, the angel had said. And he would prepare God's people. He would prepare God's people not for himself, but for the one who was coming. For the hope of Israel. For this one that they had been waiting for. His job was to point to Jesus. It wasn't about him. He was to prepare the people. Prepare them for Christ. I love John. If you ask my kids who's who's your dad's favorite character in the Bible, they'll tell you it's John the Baptist. I don't know why I love him so much. He's just such a great character. I think one of the things I love about John, though, is that his job is simply to be a sign pointing to Jesus. He just says, "This is don't don't look at me. I'm 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 nothing. I'm just the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. I'm the one that stands and points you to the real Messiah, to the real one that you are to look at." Of course, at Christmas time we don't set up um, nativities that show the birth of John. That's not what it's about. Because John was to point to Jesus. Because Jesus has come, as Luke tells us, to be the Savior of the world. He has come to live and to die so that we might have life in him. But we must repent. We must repent, as I think Zechariah had to do here, because of his unbelief. That he was rebuked by this sign and he needed to repent and say, I did not believe, God, that you would do this. He repents and he believes that God blesses and will see him praise the Lord at the end of chapter 1. In my mind's eye, this probably isn't, this is extra biblical. But in my mind's eye, I like to think about Zechariah maybe, maybe lasting long enough to see John preaching in the wilderness. Can you imagine that? I don't, he was old when John was born, so he probably didn't. But just let's say he was 70 years old and God was gracious. And at 100 years old, he got to go out to the wilderness and see John baptizing and, and preaching uh, in the wilderness. That maybe was one of his, his last wishes was to go out there. And I, and I just imagine Zechariah showing up and seeing John out there proclaiming this message, and maybe he had just started this whole baptism thing, and he hadn't hadn't done it at all yet, you know. And and he's saying everyone should come and be baptized, and everyone's sort of just shifting their weight from one foot to the other, and no one's responding. But I think Zechariah may have been the first one that would go into the water because he he knew he knew that he needed to prepare his heart for the coming of the Lord. He knew how he had responded in unbelief, but he knew that if he would repent, that God would be gracious, that God would forgive. So I just have this picture in my mind again, it's probably not true, but of, of John baptizing his father for repentance, to prepare for the coming of the Lord. Repentance isn't something that we would normally talk about around Christmas time, but I think it's one way that we prepare for the coming of Jesus. 
to recognize that we have that we have failed, that we have been we have lived in disbelief, that we even as we look at this, that we have not been people of prayer, that we have not recognized our dependence on God alone. We repent. We say, God, we believe what you say. We respond in faith. We're not going to ask for signs. We're going to say, if God says it, then whatever excuses I have, whether it's just I'm old or I'm young or I'm not smart enough or whatever excuses we have, they, they all pale in comparison. Can God, God can do whatever he wants. And we're going to see that even more in the coming chapters. But as we think about this idea of, of repentance, maybe that's the way to go this morning, to think about repenting of prayerlessness, to think about repenting of disbelief, and to prepare our hearts, even in this Christmas season, but also just for service and to God in general that we would be people who believe.